Well, good morning. I hope that everyone is doing well. It seems like you're all various stages of awake. I'll take it. Uh, I hope you're ready to open God's Word. We're going to be continuing our study of Matthew chapter 24, and we're going to be looking at verses 29 through 31 eventually. <laughs> eventually. Uh, this section is a continuation of what we call the Olivet Discourse, and who remembers what Jesus has been talking about during this discourse? Yes. The end times, exactly. Uh, he's talking about the end times. And this is in response to what the disciples asked him in verse 3, saying, when is the current age going to end and the Messianic kingdom begin? And we see from the way Jesus responds to this question and the way the disciple, disciples, wow, disciples have been acting up until now that they kind of have this expectation in their mind. And who remembers what that expectation was? Was the expectation that it's going to be a year or two away? A thousand years away? Or did they have an expectation that it was going to be pretty? Next week, yeah, Sage, yeah. They, they, they had an expectation. It was, it was coming real immediately. Any day now, the Messianic kingdom was going to happen. And we see that Jesus takes the time to patiently explain to them that, no, it's not next week. I have a different purpose in mind, but y'all have asked me, so let me tell you. And he goes into this discourse talking about all the different signs that the disciples would see would they be alive still when Jesus' kingdom comes? And we've gone over a lot of stuff in this text so far, right? Uh, we've talked about persecution for believers, a rise of hatred like we've never seen before, a rise of lawlessness, and uh, it's a lot to take in. But after the lesson on Wednesday night, Alejandro came up and he talked about when the tribulation begins, where we're going to be. And it kind of got me thinking that uh, I'm worried that as we've been going over this, we might have missed the forest for the trees. Is anyone familiar with that phrase? Missing the forest for the trees? Some yeses? Yeah, so I, I think this might be kind of an old Southern saying, because my wife, when she moved down here, I used this saying, and she's like, what are you talking about, Bennett? Uh, so <laughs> this, might be, this might be a Bennett phrase. This might be more well-known, but I think it's at least a Southern phrase. But what it means is we're so focused on one tree and all its details that we miss the fact that there's, there's a forest around us. Uh, and so what I want to do is kind of step back and get the broad forest overview as we wrap up Jesus' discussion of what signs come before his kingdom is established. So our lesson for today, we're going to call it The End Has Come, and this is going to be a heavenly perspective. And the theme will be, when Christ returns as king, he comes in terrifying wrath and awesome glory. But so this isn't going to be as structured as one of my usual lessons where I have three points, and we go point by point, and we really break it down. Uh, there's still going to be three points. It's just that we're going to see these three points go over and over again uh, as we go through our, our topics this morning. But as we do so, I, I do want you just to take notes on these three topics as they come up. And first, I want you to note how God reveals himself through his righteous judgments. Second, I want you to note how the world responds to the judgments of God. And third, I want you to note how the elect responds to the judgments of God. So let's start at the very beginning of the tribulation period, as I hear the beginning is always a very good place to start. According to the passages we've read in Daniel last week, how long is the tribulation period? Does anyone remember? Yes, Ian. Close. Close. Double that. Yeah, Aiden. 
Seven years, yes. So the, the tribulation period is what we refer to as the entire seven-year period. Uh, uh, it's mentioned as the 70th week in Daniel 9.27. And it's a time that we know from Daniel chapter 9 that begins with the Antichrist making a firm covenant with Israel. And then halfway through the three and a half years that Ian mentioned, the Antichrist goes into God's temple and profanes it. He sets himself up as God and he... Uh, he takes away the regular sacrifice and sets it up to himself. Now, as for those of us who are Christians at that time, where are we going to be? You've already answered, Ian. Give someone else another shot. Where are you going to be during the seven-year time period? Should the Lord return and the tribulation begin, where are you going to be? Yes, sir. Heaven. Heaven. Exactly. Very good. It, it, was, it was an easy— I, I know I trick y'all sometimes, but this was the easy response. You will be in heaven— uh, prior to the tribulation time period, we are called uh, what's raptured, and we know that there is a rapture from passages such as 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 through 17. And Paul here is addressing this rising concern among believers. The longer it took for their time uh, for Jesus to return, there's this growing concern that, hey, I have believing family members who have died. Does that mean that they missed out, that they're not going to be part of God's heavenly kingdom? And Paul addresses this. Uh, he writes, Again, this is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 15 through 17. He says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep, that is, those who have died. Just a colorful uh, euphemism there. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. So we know that the rapture takes place prior to Christ's coming, before his uh, millennial kingdom at the very least, and we can even have confidence about when it happens. Like, we don't have to be afraid, like, maybe this happens at the end of the tribulation period, after we've lived through everything bad. Maybe this happens at the, at the middle, right before things get really bad. No, we can have confidence that it happens at the beginning, because in the very next chapter, 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, where Paul is still talking about the end times, he writes, For God has not appointed us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Since it is not God's intent for the elect to suffer his wrath, the only point in the tribulation period that it would work for us to be raptured would be before the tribulation actually even begins. Because as soon as the seven-year tribulation time period begins, we see that God starts to pour out his wrath on sinful mankind. Uh, now, since God has not appointed us believers for his wrath, does that mean in that seven-year time period, as soon as you come to faith, that's it? You're raptured? You're gone? What do you think? This is binary choice, yes or no? If you think, yes, you're instantly raptured during, during the tribulation period, go ahead and raise your hands up. Easy? No? Wow, everyone's raising their hands. Uh, anyone listening on the audio, it's a good thing we're talking about this because everyone's raising their hand. I wish you could see this right now. No, sorry. What? Lying is a sin. I, I'm lying is a sin. That's true. Okay, fine. No one's raising their hands. Good job, everyone. No, uh, you're not immediately raptured during the tribulation time period. Uh, we know from other verses that God mentioned that it's not his desire for anyone to go to hell. But because God is a righteous and just God, his justice demands the correct punishment for our sins. And that means that, yes, people do go to hell, and they go to hell for all eternity. In the same way, 
there is a consequence for not believing in God prior to the rapture. And one of those consequences, unfortunately, is that any Christian who comes, or any of the elect who comes to faith during that time period uh, does have to suffer through the rest of the time period of the tribulation. Now, in Matthew 24, Jesus reveals to us the things that are going to take place from man's perspective during the tribulation time period. And this makes a lot of sense, right? The disciples have asked, how are we going to know? This is coming, right? And Jesus is responding, no, there's still things that have to happen, but here are the signs that you as a human will be able to observe that indicate my kingdom is coming. And he does this uh, so that we can know the signs and so that we are not deceived by false teachers. In Revelation, however, Jesus is showing John the tribulation from a heavenly perspective. And as we do our overview, I want us to be aware of what's going on in this heavenly perspective uh, while we see what's also going on as mankind receives the wrath of God. So just before the events Jesus describes here in uh, in Matthew 24, uh, in Revelation, we start with um, God on his throne room, in his throne. And we're given this picture of a legal court before the throne of God. And as as we come into this legal courtroom, we find out that a verdict has already been given by God. And that verdict has been sealed up uh, as a scroll rolled up and sealed with seven wax seals. Now, a wax seal at this time, it was typically, there we go, it was typically a bit of melted wax. You see how they would roll up the paper and they'd melt some wax on it and then they'd stamp it with their insignia. And the point of this was that legally, no one but the intended recipient of that seal was allowed to break it. However, as John watches the court proceedings, he begins to weep because no one was found in heaven or on earth who could break these seven seals on the verdict from God. Then one of the elders tells John, weep no more. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the scroll and its seven seals. And Jesus comes forward as the only one worthy to break the seals. And as Jesus takes that verdict from God, those present in the throne room bow before the Lamb. And all the angels in heaven cry out, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And in response, all of creation says, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessings and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And I want you to think about this scene just for a moment. If you're taking notes, this response right here, this would go under the response from the elect about God's judgment. This praise and adoration that John sees uh, as Jesus is about to break the seals and God is about to pour out his wrath, this is the praise and adoration that mankind should have been giving to God during our entire life on earth. Uh, when Romans 1.8 says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, this is the truth that's being suppressed. God put his glory on display throughout the universe, and rather than praising him, as we should, we turn our eyes inward and worship ourselves. We cut down a tree, and with half of that, we make a fire to warm ourselves. And with the other half, we turn it into an idol and we bow down and worship it. The very praise that God deserves, we give creation instead. 
And yet, despite the fact that every last one of us are slapping the face of God, not giving him the glory that is rightfully his, God waits patiently for us to repent from our sins and turn to him. But in Revelation 6, we see that the waiting ends. Having raptured his church, in Revelation 6, verse 1, the Lamb breaks the first seal and sends war to earth. That's just not going to work anymore. Sorry, guys. Uh, And in Matthew 24, verse 6, what is the first thing Jesus mentions must take place prior to his coming kingdom? Matthew 24, verse 6 was the first thing that we read there that he gives as a sign. Yeah, Will? No, no, in Matthew 24, verse 6, it says one very specific thing Wars and rumors of wars. So I want you all to see that in, in Revelation 6-1, the first seal is broken and God sends war to earth. And in Matthew 24, verse 6, we see that God promises that there's going to be wars and rumors of wars. And when Jesus breaks the second seal, we're told in Revelation 6-4 that he removes peace from the earth. And in Matthew 24, verse 7, what's the next thing we see that Jesus says has to come before his kingdom does? You going to be bold again, Will? Go for it. No, no. One before that. Yes. Kingdoms against kingdoms and nations against nations. So what are we seeing? We're seeing that peace is removed from the earth. As Jesus breaks the first four seals, we see the events of Matthew 24, verses 5 through 8, play out perfectly with this scene in heaven. As John records the Lamb breaking the seals before God, and God pouring out his judgment of the sins of mankind. Though we certainly have wars and earthquakes and famines today, the events we have right now, they're not the fulfillment of what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 24. And we talked about this last Wednesday. I read, read that as a child, and I got a little scared, like, whoa, you know, th- all these things are happening. Like Jesus said they were, that means his kingdom is immediate. Well, no, the stuff happening right now, that's just us being sinful. There is coming a time when God removes the restraints that he has put on the hearts of men, and as part of that restraint, we're going to see war like we've never seen before. We're going to see peace removed like we have never seen before. God removes his restraining influence and allows mankind to war to their wicked heart's content. And yet, in verse 8 of Matthew 24, we're told that this is merely the beginning of birth pains, which we should view as a staggering statement from God. As in Revelation 6, when we talk about this fourth seal that's broken and these famines are happening and the plagues are happening— Uh, we find out that these beginning birth pains represent 25% of the world's population being wiped out at this time. Before the abomination of desolation ever happens, God wipes out a quarter of the earth. And just for reference, there are 8 billion people right now. So we're talking about 2 billion people dying in at most a three and a half year time span. And just for a frame of reference, Genghis Khan and his conquest through the Mongolian conquest During the entire span of his conquest, 162 years, we saw 10% of the world's population die. 
In World War II, a span that lasted about five years, we saw 3.7% of the world's population die. The death toll the world will see in the first half of the tribulation is going to be unprecedented by any standards we have today. Unprecedented since basically Noah and the ark. And yet, God tells us this is merely the beginning of birth pains. And it's my hope that this is painting a picture for us here today of the weight of our sin. And at the same time, it paints a picture for God's amazing, loving kindness and his long suffering. And I know talking about how loving God is right after we talk about how he's going to kill two billion people for their sins uh, seems like a bit of a disjoint, right? Like these two things don't seem like they mesh up very well. But I want you to remember that this is the very punishment that all of us here today have deserved from the very first moment we sinned. From the very first moment Adam first sinned, rebelling against God and eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he deserved an immediate death. And yet God in his loving mercy placed the immediate punishment for Adam's guilt on an innocent animal. And then he told Adam, not only have I done this for you, not only am I going to set up a system of symbolic sacrifice, something that looks forward to the coming Savior, I'm going to even provide for you that coming Savior through Eve's line. And ever since then, for the past 6,000-ish years, each one of us has rejected God, choosing to pursue our own fleshly desires instead. And yet God has patiently waited. Christian, we should be humbled by how long-suffering our God is. When you're filled with doubt, thinking, man, there's no way God is going to hold my salvation fast. I have committed too much sin. Or if you're not a Christian yet, and you think, there's no way God could ever forgive my sins, turn your eyes to the promise of God's coming wrath and realize how incredibly patient God has been with us. That he has endured so much animosity, animosity from his own creation and still chose not to kill us, but instead sent his son to die for us. Now, if you're not in Christ today, though we've already covered some heavy topics, and there are honestly some heavier topics yet to come, it's my prayer that you would not merely be frightened by a fire and brimstone kind of lesson, okay? Uh, but that you would instead see how holy and righteous God is. And that you would see your sin not as a source of momentary temporal pleasures, but you would see your sin the way God sees your sin. And you would turn from those sins to him who is lovingly and patiently waiting for you while there is still time. So how does mankind respond to these first four seals being broken and God revealing himself through these judgments? Do they turn to repentance from this? No. No, uh, actually what we see is that they turn to worship the Antichrist instead of worshiping God. They praise the Antichrist as the Almighty, saying that there is no one who can wage war against the Antichrist's power. And on earth, in Matthew 24, 16, we see the Antichrist launching his war against the saints in response, uh, against the saints, and in response, in Revelation 6, 10, we see that the fifth seal is broken. And those Christians that are killed during this time of persecution led by the Antichrist, they lift up a prayer to God. And they say, How long, O Master, holy and true, will you not judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on earth? 
I love how Revelation 6, 9, one verse earlier, describes these Christians who are rising up this prayer to God. It says they were specifically slain because of the witness which they maintained. Even in the face of death, in a time of unparalleled persecution against Christians, they maintained the faith, witnessing about God until the very moment of their death. Now, I want you to understand that this prayer, when they're saying, how long, how long? This isn't them being accusatory against God. They're not saying, hey, are you blind? Don't you see all of us coming up here at an increased rate? Like, uh, heaven's getting a little full right now, don't you think? They're not saying this. They're saying that, God, you are righteous and holy. How long can your righteous holiness not punish sin? This is what we call an imprecatory prayer. And we see this also in Psalms. It is a recognition that God's justice demands punishment. And God's response is that they must wait just a little bit longer, that the time is not yet complete, that there's going to be more killed. And once the number of those that God has appointed to die of his elect is fulfilled, then he will act. Well, with this, we've actually finally made it to the passage for this morning. Good, good job, everyone, for making it this far. <laughs> and I want you to notice that like everything else we've gone over so far, we're going to see these three main points in the passage this morning. We're going to see that God judges sinful man. We're going to see how sinful man reacts to God's judgment. And then we're going to see how the elect reacts to God's judgment. So let's go ahead and read our passage Uh, I think I've given you plenty of time to get to Matthew 24, and we're going to be in verses 29 through 31. And it says, But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heaven will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. He will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. In verse 29, when Jesus says immediately after the tribulation of those days, he's not talking about the seven-year time period. We're talking about specifically the time period that God has set aside for the Antichrist and his followers to wage war against the elect. And we know this because the events described here in verse 29 matches up with what happens when the sixth seal is broken in Revelation 6-9. But as we come to verse 29, we can't really be certain how much time has passed, okay? We we don't know how long the persecution of the saints are going to be during this time period. It could be that the persecution lasts a month, it could be a week, or at most it could be three years. Like, I I know for a fact it's not longer than three years because of other things Revelation says it takes five months later on. So at most, we're talking about a three-year time period. But as this time begins, God uses the heavenly bodies to give the people of earth an unmistakable sign that he is going to be judging them, that he is in the midst of judging them right now, and that because they see this sign, the only response they are to have is one of repentance. God causes the sun to turn black and the moon to lose its light, or in other translations, it might say to turn red. And he causes the stars to fall from the sky. Now, there's some people who want to look at this, and they want to say this is all allegorical. But it's important that we understand that this is a literal promise that God is going to do something physical and observable for us to see. 
Everything else Jesus has told the disciples about have been promises of a literal, observable event. And there's no reason to think that God suddenly changes gears here and makes everything figurative. Especially because the whole point of this discourse is Jesus is telling them, hey, these are the signs that you will see before I come. So if this was all some sort of allegory, it wouldn't make sense because we can't see what's going on allegorically in heaven. We can only see as humans what's going on right here on earth. They have to be literal, observable events for the elect living, for the elect living at that time to be able to recognize that Christ's kingdom is coming. The same way God caused an earthquake and blacked out the sun when Jesus died, he's doing the same thing here. He's using these astronomical signs that go against the natural order of the universe as proof that he is the one doing them. Likewise, when Jesus says the scar, uh, scars, the stars fall from the sky, we should take this as a literal event. When we look at the sixth seal being broken in Revelation 6.13, we see that the stars falling to earth is described as the fruit of a fig tree falling during a winter gale. And this imagery makes it clear that what we're talking about when the stars fall from the sky, we're not talking about literal stars, right? Like if a literal star fell from the sky to earth, we'd be incinerated, but long before it ever got to earth. Uh, talking about stars falling from the sky, we're talking most likely about a meteor shower. But it's going to be a meteor shower unlike anything we've ever seen before in the world. And as one of the final demonstrations of his power with the sixth seal, God shakes the powers of the heaven. That's what we're told here in Matthew 24. Now, I saw some commentators saying that this is a reference to Satan being kicked out of heaven. And yeah, that, that happens. In Revelation 12, we see that God kicks the accuser out from heaven. That Satan is no longer allowed to come before the throne of God and say, look at Matthew Bennett. Look at everything bad he does. Why does he deserve your grace? Why does he deserve your love? At that point, God kicks him out. Satan is no longer allowed to accuse the saints before God. That happens. But that's not what's talking about here. Uh, and I'm not going to tackle Revelation 12 this morning with the dragon and the beast and the woman. It's, it's, it's a whole cup of warm, guys. <laughs> but sufficient to say, we can see from the description of the sixth seal in Revelation 6.14 that this shaking of the heavens is not a reference to Satan, but again, a literal physical event. The same way all the other five seals have been literal, physical, observable events. But what we are told is that the sky will split open like a scroll when God displays his power here. Now, what does that mean? Does anyone know? No? No? Good. Keep your hands down. No one knows, okay? <laughs> Sorry, there, there's some things God doesn't tell us. Uh, we're told that it's going to look like the sky split open. What does that mean? I don't know. If anyone is there and observes it, They'll go, yes, that is exactly what I would describe as the sky being split open. So we can trust it as being true and accurate, even though we have no idea what this is actually describing. But what we should take away is that we truly serve a God whose might defies human comprehension as he reveals himself through these righteous judgments. As we come to verse 30, there's a bit of a time skip. Um, Jesus skips over a large portion of the remaining judgments of God that we see in Revelation, and he goes straight to the moment of his coming, that his coming is displayed in the sky, and we see man's response to it. Uh, in verse 30, we read, and, the sign, uh, and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, 
And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. So this, this sign of the Son of Man, we're probably talking about the seventh trumpet, which is part of the breaking of the seventh seal. And like I said, we're skipping over a lot of stuff. Uh, the seventh seal is... This thing has a delay to it, guys. Sorry about that. It just doesn't want to work. Well, that's fine. We'll sit there. You can take some notes anyway. Uh, the seventh seal is broken, and as part of these seventh seals, God pours out seven more punishments, which is the seventh trumpet, or which are the seven trumpets. And the last trumpet uh, is most likely what we're referring to as we talk about the sign of the Son of Man appearing in the sky. And while we're not going to cover all the seven trumpets in detail, here is just a short summary of what we see during this time of God's judgment. After the the sixth seal is broken, we actually get a brief interlude where God pauses his judgment. And this is one of the most amazing things in Revelation. As we watch the judgment of God being poured out, he instructs his angels to stop just for a moment. And he gathers for himself an army of witnesses. They go out and they proselyze the world. And God says, harm no one else until the full number of my elect has been called to myself. And it's only after God seals every last person that is going to repent that he resumes this time of punishment. And you can see that this time of punishment is like nothing that came before in the world. God, during this time of these seven trumpets, utterly puts to shame everything man had ever put their hope in or had tried to glorify over himself. Then we see the seventh trumpet as we come to Revelation eleven fifteen through 18, which says the seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there was a loud voice in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And I want you to pay attention to this. This is how the elect respond to God's judgment. The 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, we give you thanks, O Lord God the Almighty, who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. And here's the response of the wicked. It says, and the nations were enraged, and your rage came, and the time came for the dead to be judged and to give reward to your slaves the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, the small and the great, and to destroy those who destroyed the earth. For those who are the elect, they see God's judgment and they fall down and they worship him because his judgments are true and righteous. But for those who reject God, they are enraged because God is judging them in their righteousness. Remember, the whole point of sin is, I don't want God to be in control. And when God says, I am in control, and I will prove it to you through my judgments, it enrages men because they're not allowed to continue on their ceiling and their sinning. In fact, five times as we go through these final judgments, uh, the Bible explicitly says that though they recognize God is the one doing it, they refuse to repent. Uh, In Revelation 9-6, we see that rather than repenting, men seek death, but death flees from them. In Revelation 9.20, those who are not killed by the plagues continue to worship demons and idols and refuse to repent. Revelation 6.19, they blaspheme in the name of God who has authority over these plagues and they did not repent so as to give him the glory. Revelation 16.11, they blaspheme the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores 
and they did not repent of their deeds. Revelation 16, 14, rather than repenting, they gathered together under Satan to wage war against God. When mankind sees the sign of, of man, their response is not to repent, but instead blaspheme the name of God and mourn that they can no longer indulge in the lust of their flesh. And keep in mind, from the breaking of the sixth seal on, there is zero question anymore that God is the one doing this. We actually see this in Revelation 6, verses 15 to 17. In response to Jesus breaking the sixth seal, we read, Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals of the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us! Hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Listen to that. From the most powerful king, the most powerful general with the biggest army, all the way down to the lowest slave, each one of them recognizes what is happening is a direct result of God judging them in his wrath. Mankind goes from worshiping the Antichrist, saying, who is like the Antichrist? Who can wage war against him? To recognizing their guilt before God in a single instance. But like Adam, instead of repenting, they try to hide from the face of God. And they mourn, not because they're sinners in need of a Savior. They're that for sure, but that's not why they're mourning. They're mourning because they can no longer gluttonously indulge in the lust of their flesh. In fact, Revelation 18 is one big chapter recording the lament of mankind as Babylon, the reference or the, the symbol of man's sin and rebellion against God, is destroyed. We see the kings of the earth weeping because they can no longer practice their sexual immorality in Revelation 18:9. We see the merchants weeping because they can no longer satisfy their greed in verse 11. And we see the common people crying out about the destruction and the fact that they can no longer satisfy their desires in verse 19. Conversely, look at how the elect responds to God. In Matthew 24, 31, we read, And he will, gather, or he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. Having completed his judgment, God calls his elect to himself. And in contrast to the response of mankind, where they mourn that they don't get a sin anymore, Look at the response of the elect. Very next chapter in Revelation. Uh, Revelation 9, verses 1 to 5, we read, After this, after the destruction of Babylon, and after all the people of the world cry out and mourn that they can't sin anymore, after this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried aloud, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen! Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. This is the response of the elect to the judgment of God. They rejoice, pronouncing God's judgments as true and just. Well, this morning we have done a whirlwind overview of Matthew 24. 
of the tribulation period. And I hope that this has given you kind of a, a mindset of what this timeline is. Like Alejandro said, we don't have to be worried about this. As Christians, we are going to be gone long before this happens. Matthew Bennett, either I'm going to be dead when Christ returns, because I will have died from natural causes, or I will be raptured long before God starts pouring out his punishment. And I hope that as you get this heavenly-minded perspective of the tribulation period, you get to see God revealing himself through his righteous judgments, and you can see how, to the world, those judgments are things that bring them anger, and they mourn that they don't get to indulge in that sin anymore. But to the righteous, we rejoice with him. And we have two points of application from this passage that I want you to be considering this week. First, I want you to consider how are you treating your sin right now? I want you to take how you treat your sin and hold it up against God's standard. As we see him pouring out his wrath, are you treating it the same way? Are you treating it with disgust, the way that God sees it? Or are you encouraging it? I mean, I know that personally, there are plenty of times where I choose to indulge my sin. You know, I, I see someone's offended me, and, and I get mad at them, and I go, well, you know, it's okay that I'm mad at this person right now. It's okay that I'm being impatient with this person right now, because they, they really deserved it. And I take that sin, and I let it fester, instead of looking at it with the disgust that God has. Are you indulging the desires of your flesh, or are you treating your sin with the same level of severity that God will one day display with his judgment on sin. The second thing I want you to consider for application is, do you praise God for the execution of his judgment against sinful men? And I know this is a hard one for us to grasp. The idea of us rejoicing about God's judgments on sinful men. And it is absolutely true that while these sinful men are alive, we should be praying for them. Matthew 5, tells us to pray for those who persecute you because it is our desire not to see God's judgment poured out on them, but to see God's grace lavishly given to them the same way that God's grace was lavishly given to you. But it is also true that when God does judge the wicked, our response should be one where we praise him, not because we rejoice that they got what was coming to them, but we rejoice that God's judgments are true and just. And we rejoice that God is faithful to pour out his justice on them. And what I'm really asking here this morning is that do you praise God for the execution of his judgment against you and against your sin? When God rebukes you for the sin in your life, do you praise him that he, like a loving father, is correcting you in that moment? Or do you, like the rest of the wicked men of the world, mourn that God is disciplining you and not letting you enjoy that momentary sin? Let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning that you have given your word to us so that we might learn more about you. Lord, I pray that we would praise you for the discipline you bring into our lives, confessing that your judgments are true and your punishments are the just verdict for our sins. Father, please keep from us 
hard-hearted rebellion when we are disciplined by you. Please move our hearts to view our sin with the same disgust that you have for our sin, rather than weeping when you take away our sin. Father, we love you, and we thank you for the, these things that you saw fit to reveal to us through the scriptures. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.